Hey, welcome to night school. You know, I was secretly hoping to have a bunch of every night's of school nights in a row. We just had two in a row, uninterrupted. And I was hoping to have like seven or eight. I was hoping to get to episode 80 of every night's of school night without a night school interruption. I was hoping, but here we are. It's like breaking sobriety or something. That's how I feel about this. I'm like, I'm going to have a bunch of every night's of school night pseudo-radio episodes in a row, and here I am. It feels like breaking sobriety to be doing a night school. But the thing is, if you break sobriety, which I haven't, but if you break sobriety, you might as well enjoy it. Because along with, you know, I, I have no desire to break my alcohol sobriety. But at the same time, if I did, I feel like it's one of those things where you would just own it. You might as well enjoy it. Because if you break your sobriety, you know, you could easily just torture yourself. And you will. I know I would. If I decided to start drinking again, I knew, I know that the, I would just torture myself a little bit over it. But it's one of those things. It's like, if you're going to eat the donut at work, eat it and just enjoy it. And don't make the comment to your coworkers, ooh, got to work this off later. Got to work this off later. That's what people do. That's what made me go insane, you know. When someone would bring donuts into every office I've ever ever worked in, which is really nice. Like, I love that person who brings the donuts in, but there's always that person who's like, oh, I'm being bad. And they, they cut a little piece of the donut off the donut, the don't it. They, they cut a little piece of the don't it off bit by bit, but they end up eating the whole donut within like five minutes, but they use that little serrated plastic knife to cut off little piece by piece. You're eating that donut piecemeal, literally piecemeal. That term, the term piecemeal, it actually comes from eating donuts bit by bit with a little plastic knife. But, uh, you know, it's the same thing, though. It's like if you're going to break sobriety, which I don't recommend you do, But if you're going to do that, you might as well enjoy it and not torture yourself over the fact that you broke it, that you didn't live up to whatever standard you sent. It's the same thing. If you're going to eat the donut, don't make some comment about how you feel guilty or you're going to have to go to the gym for an extra 15 minutes later. Don't do that. Just enjoy it. That's what I try to do. I mean, I still do get guilt. You're still going to deal with these things, but you can aim. You can aim. The most distant shore to you might just be not feeling guilty about eating a donut. And you might never feel completely not guilty when you eat a donut. But if you can get just a little further along, you know, if you can just get a little further along and feel just slightly less guilty, maybe cut it into slightly larger pieces with your little white plastic serrated knife. Cut it into slightly larger pieces until you're eventually maybe eating a half at a time. And if that's good enough, that's good enough. If you're eating that donut one half at a time, I don't think there's anything embarrassing about that. Nothing nearly as embarrassing as eating it like inch by inch. And I've tried it. You know, I'm speaking from experience. I've been that person. I've been that person who every time I go to the bathroom, every time I take a break, I walk by the donut tray that just has been sitting out there all day. And I I cut off a little piece. And then by the end of the day, I've eaten two or three donuts probably inch by inch. And it's probably better for you. I mean, it's probably better to eat it inch by inch. It allows your body to process the dough and the sugar. It's probably better for you to do that, but the guilt isn't. 
the weird mathematics you're trying to do to justify eating a donut, that's not better for you. So you might as well eat it all at once. Stuff your face. Just stuff your face. I worked with a guy, uh, he had autism. Pretty severe. Like, not severe, severe, but he was, it was more than just Asperger's. And we would give him, I was his supervisor for a little while, and we would give him very specific duties, like going through files. He was very good at that. But one thing is he didn't have any self-control when it came to food, especially sweets. And people were bringing donuts into that office, it felt like, every day. And he would go over and he would, he would leave with, like, stacks of donuts. And everybody knew his situation. Everybody knew, you know, his personality. People knew what was going on with him, more or less. And so nobody, you know, fought it. Let him have a bunch of donuts. Uh, you know, let him have as many as he wants. And one time an older guy, there were a lot of older people in this office, and he, an older guy goes, ooh, got a lot of donuts there, Sky." I said his name, fuck. You're going to find out who he is. You're going to tell him. No, but uh, you got a lot of donuts there, Sky. And uh, the Sky got very defensive. It was, it was incredible. You know, for, for as confident as he was in just going over, you know, because I've been the greedy guy at work before who, you know, eats probably more than my share of donuts. I've been that guy before, but I go over, you know, I'm sneaky. I'm sneaky, you know, in the same way that every break I take, every time I go to the bathroom, I'll cut off a little, another little piece of donut. You know, I'm pretty sneaky where, like, if I'm going to eat five donuts, I'm going to do them one by one. But Sky, he would walk over and he would just have, like, two hands each with, like, a donut for the base and then, like, a stack of them on each. And I'm not exaggerating. He had, you know, two stacks of donuts. And I'm not saying it was a stack all the way to the ceiling or anything, but it was more than any, more donuts than anyone needs at once. And the fact that he was not self-aware at all. But, yeah, he got this comment, and he suddenly, it wasn't even that he got self-aware when this guy was like, a lot of donuts there, Sky. That guy's voice is just going to get higher and higher. Uh, but when that guy said that, it wasn't that Sky became self-aware. It was that it was almost like he got defensive. It was almost like somebody was going to take the donuts away. Like somebody was like policing his donut intake. No joke intended. No police joke. Oh yeah, you know cops love donuts. You ever think about policing the donut intake? It's stupid. Um, but uh, it was just funny to see that. You know, just see him suddenly not become self-conscious, but just get really defensive. It was animalistic. He like he kind of like tucked the donuts into his chest a little more and hurried off to this other room where he was going. And I had this other experience with him too. And I'm not trying to like make fun of somebody who had some sort of impairment or condition. It was just interesting. And if I even need to give that disclaimer, I hopefully don't, you know, because I try to just describe reality as I see it. And it's not like I would go up to every random person and tell them this story, but it was just, it was something interesting to observe. And I had, there was another experience where we were having a meeting, and this is another thing, this just tells you, you know, beyond like people bringing in donuts every day, they also had a, one of those giant like Cheeto ball containers in this office. It was in the break room, and that's disgusting. Like, I used to love those. I used to love Cheetos and the balls and all that. And there's something kind of disgusting. Your hands are covered. I mean, it's it's pleasurable but disgusting. And 
but it's disgusting for everybody to be reaching into this big. It was like like one of the giant. If you've heard of the store World Market, I don't know if they have those everywhere, but here they have a store called World Market, and you can buy. It's seriously a giant thing of cheese balls, and they're not Cheeto brand, and they're kind of. I don't. World Market likes to pride itself on being gourmet, so maybe they're gourmet cheese balls, Cheeto type balls. And so they had a huge one of those, and it's just disgusting, people reaching their hands in there. But it gets even more disgusting, because we were having a meeting one time, and the Cheeto ball thing, and I'm trying to think of like what, it was like the size of a, a cauldron. It was like having a cauldron, a, a clear plastic cauldron in the office filled with cheese balls. And But this kid, he, this guy, he had the, the cheese balls, he had the container on his lap, and it was running really low. And in the same way that he couldn't restrain himself when it came to donuts, I have to imagine he probably ate a large amount of the cheese balls that were in there. But it was getting low, and he had it on his lap in this meeting. And I noticed, I looked over, and I noticed that he was licking his finger and running it around the bottom, the dust, the orange dust, as they call it, that... uh you know, that's on the uh, the periodic table, orange dust, O-D. And he was running his finger through the orange dust and then licking it off and then running his finger through the bottom again. And this thing wasn't completely empty. And he wasn't eating, he wasn't finishing off the cheese balls. So after this meeting, this clear cauldron of cheese balls was going to be placed back on the shelf, having had his saliva you know, his saliva-covered finger running around the bottom. And you know what? I didn't say anything. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to say. You know, I didn't know... I should have said something. If not to him, I should have said something to everybody else and been like, don't eat from that ever again. Don't don't eat from that, okay? (laughs) Sky was running his finger around the bottom, you know. It was just one of those things. Um, But, uh... But yeah, it was it was just a moment for sure. It was my little moment because I don't think anybody else was aware. Although maybe I shouldn't feel so guilty and maybe there were maybe there were other people who noticed. Other people had to have. Like one of the things I always say is that people are so much more aware than they let on. I'm not the only one who noticed Skylar licking his finger and running it around the orange dust in the bottom of this thing and putting it back. So I, I'm not the only one, but at the same time, it's like just because you're not the only one to witness a murder or something doesn't mean you're not an accomplice or I don't know. I guess I'm an accomplice. Legally, I'm an accomplice to what Skyler was doing with those cheese balls, with that orange dust, which sounds like some sort of euphemism for drugs. Like I'm an accomplice to what he was doing with the orange dust. But uh, yeah, about it's just I was the whole thing came up though because this kid he felt no guilt not only of taking all the donuts but also, uh, you know the cheese the orange dust he had no guilt about getting his saliva all over that, and so if you're gonna do something don't be guilty but it's like you you might always feel a little guilty but you know, it's one of those things. You know today's been interesting. Uh, you know I've been doing like a ton of shit on Facebook the last couple of days including like tons of live streams about bathroom reform. And I think what I'm going to do rather than just regurgitate Facebook live streams that nobody watches here 
Because I think I'm just if if I like what I'm doing, I'm just gonna like put it to audio and upload it as as a podcast. But it is one of those things where I've just been riffing on this idea of bathroom reform, and it's obviously a joke. But like any joke I make, there's there's an element of reality where I don't like public restrooms, and I'm pee shy, and I do feel that the whole coronavirus situation has you know made public bathrooms even more undesirable, if that was even possible. Now it's you know so I'm, what I'm saying is we should abolish public restrooms. We should divide them into single occupancy restrooms and that'll give people jobs because a lot of people are going to be out of work and we're going to have a lot of open retail space so if we convert them to restrooms and we have people build them well there's jobs right there and we are realizing my dream of having a lot more single occupancy restrooms a pea shy guy's paradise and that would be my GeoCities homepage if you could still make GeoCities pages. Pea Shy Guy's Paradise. I post pictures of things I like. And the things I like are single occupancy restrooms. But yeah, my idea is just it's like a you know, it's a fake political sort of campaign. And it gets into all this out there talk, but you know, it's facetious. But like everything I'm into, it's like, I don't really, I don't entirely know where the joke begins and ends, but I know when I'm more joking than I am not. So it's rooted in something, but, you know, someone messaged me thinking I was serious, someone replied thinking I'm serious, and I get like no replies. So that just tells me that, (laughs) that just tells me that, uh, that people probably think I'm just being completely sincere, so they think I'm crazy or something, but. And I've been doing a lot of writing, too, and I don't really know what to do with anything I do. I've had no creative desire in terms of, like, music or art through this. I'm enjoying writing and talking right now. And writing is something I don't think I've done as much of as I could. I have in certain areas, like, I'm very into organized crime research, and I I talk to a lot of people about that. And, you know, I'll, I'll write long, rambling things based on research or ideas. Uh, but other than that, I don't do a lot of just writing for writing's sake, but I'm enjoying it right now. I don't know what it is. It's not creative writing. It's just kind of ideas. Um, but the th- something that's on my mind a lot is just how sense of humor isn't about taste. Sense of humor should never be confused with taste in humor. Because it doesn't matter whether you find something funny or not the intention is still the same. And if somebody is trying to be funny, it doesn't matter whether you laugh, whether you like it, whether you're offended, whether you love it. It doesn't matter where you fall on the spectrum. Their intent is their intent. And it's your right to feel how you want about it. You know, I'm not going to tell someone not to be offended, not to be annoyed. Because I've talked about that on here before, about how just, for whatever reason, humor, comedy, it seems like when somebody is trying to be funny but they aren't, we almost want to kill them. We almost feel personally offended. We feel like the king watching his fool and the fool did wrong. And, you know, our finger is uh, hovering by the trap door. You know, it's like we kind of feel that way when someone is trying to be funny, even if they're a professional comedian, even if they are a pro, we go, oh, I don't find this funny. So therefore, it's not funny. And it might not be. But that person is attempting to be funny and you have to give them the be- the benefit of the doubt of that. You have to recognize that they are trying and that's all a sense of humor is. It's the having the sense to recognize when someone else is intending to be funny. It's not your taste in humor. 
It has nothing to do with your taste, the things that you actually find funny. It has everything to do with your ability to detect when someone is trying to be funny. And that includes sarcasm. That includes facetiousness. You know, if you work out your sense of humor, you know, your sense of humor is a muscle. And if you use it enough, not necessarily laugh, I'm not saying you have to laugh, but if you just, if you detect humor enough, if you try to see the humor in things enough, that muscle will get stronger and your ability to pick up on sarcasm or facetiousness will get stronger too. You'll be like, oh, okay, I I get it now. I might not find it funny, but I at least get what they are going for, kind of. But it is something that you have to exercise, interestingly. Sense of humor is something you have to exercise. And it doesn't mean just paying attention to things that you that are going to make you laugh. Because I don't think that's exercising your sense of humor. I think you actually have to pay attention to things that don't make you laugh, but are intended to be funny. And sometimes I'll watch stand-up comedy, and there are comedians I like, but for the most part I wouldn't consider myself a stand-up comedy fan. But at the same time, I think it's a good exercise sometimes to watch a stand-up comedian. And even if I don't find someone funny, I can have an appreciation for their methodology or for their ability to convey an idea, to craft a joke. You know, I can appreciate a joke without laughing at it. And that's sort of what I do when a friend of mine makes a joke that doesn't make me, like, bust out laughing naturally, but I see the wit in it, and I see what it is, and I go, huh, huh, you know, it's, it's that sort of vibe. Where, and it's not disingenuous to react that way, because what I'm doing is I'm saying, it totally makes sense why that's funny, and I'm amused by it, but it's not going to just rip my insides open and make me laugh. Not going to rip my insides open. I think you're kind of funny, but you're not going to rip my insides open anytime soon. But uh, it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's you know, just the ability to detect it. And so sometimes I'll, I will watch stand-up comedy once in a blue moon, once in a full moon, um, when, you know, just, to, just to kind of enjoy what they're doing. Because it, it, it's very interesting. It's very interesting you know, when something like that becomes a craft. But uh, you know, it's, it's the same thing with the people you know. And there's something that you know, just normal people do where they almost, they need to have a prompt. You know, let's get, this is actually what I wanted to do at the beginning of the episode. I almost lost it. I almost lost it with all my talk of like donuts and cheese ball cauldrons. Um, this is what I was going to talk about. And it was like the idea of laugh tracks, where people have this idea that laugh tracks are there so that the audience knows when to laugh. And there's truth to that. You know, obviously the studio wants the audience to laugh you know, uh, obviously the production. And I don't mean, like, I mean, they even want the people at home to laugh. You know, even, I'm not talking about the live studio audience, because, you know, if there's a laugh track, it's, you know, what's the difference, though? Because, I mean, the live studio audience is being told when to laugh, so it's not really different from just copy and pasting, like, a laugh file. It's not really that different. You're just conducting it. But anyway, it's like, but it's not even that. It's like, when there's a laugh track... It's also to communicate to the people sitting at home. Now is when you laugh. And people have this idea that that's what it is, that it's just about, oh, now you can laugh at this moment. But it's not even that. It's actually laugh tracks are there to even tell you that someone is making a joke. Laugh tracks are there so that the audience even knows that character is joking. Because I would bet you that a lot of sitcoms, if they didn't have a laugh track or a live studio audience, 
people at home would be sitting there going, this character's weird. This character's weird. This character's weird. He says weird things. You know, it's like people would be sitting at home saying that because they, they wouldn't know. They wouldn't know what they're supposed to do. So it's, you know, one of the reasons for laugh tracks is simply to tell people, oh, just so you know, this is supposed to be funny. This is, they're intending to be funny, whether you like it or not. And people are like, oh, yeah, okay. We like genres. We like categories. We like knowing what we are getting into. And I've used the example before where a lot of people, you know, if they didn't go to a comedy club or if they weren't told they were going to a stand-up comedy event and they were just to watch somebody make the same comments, and it'd be weird if you were standing next to someone and they're talking the same way that a stand-up comedian talks on stage. That would be weird. You know, it's not, it's like, who is this sociopath who doesn't know how to talk face to face? In the same way that it'd be weird if I talked the way I'm talking right now to my friends. You know, not that it's, this is not that it's the same thing, but you get what I'm saying. There's an element of performance. And in that same way, though, you know, we like to kind of know what we're getting into. And when we don't, we don't know how to react. So if you were to hear a stand-up comedian say the things they're supposed to say outside of a comedy club, or if you were just to see them talking, if you thought you were going to a lecture and a stand-up comedian started talking about the things they talk about, you'd be like, this guy's weird. You know, you'd, you'd think something was wrong because you don't have a marquee that says comedy club. You come into a place for laughs. Like It's like a, if a clown did the things a clown does without a clown outfit. If a clown does the things a clown does without a clown outfit, say that 20 times fast. Uh, it's kind of the same thing where one of the reasons, it's not that clowns are that funny looking. You know, maybe people 300 years ago would disagree. <laughs> I don't know when to place clowns. I don't know when the peak of clowns was. I know they go back. I know that jesters are a form of clown and, and all that, but I don't know what the peak clown years were. Like, when we think of our idea of, like, the, the stereotypical circus clown, I don't really know when the peak was. But anyway, if you went back then, it's not even that people found the makeup and outfits that funny. It's the whole thing. The, the, the makeup and outfit communicates to somebody that, oh, this is a joke. This isn't just a guy riding a tricycle and doing stunts and, like, honking a horn. Oh, I get it. This is supposed to be, oh, this isn't serious. This, isn't, this is not a mentally ill person. This is something serious. Oh, sorry, sorry. This isn't a mentally ill person. This is, <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. This isn't a mentally ill person. This is a comedian. This is a clown. So part of the reason clowns look the way they do is for the same reason they play a laugh track. It's to communicate to you that this is a joke. Because if people aren't told something is supposed to be funny, or if they aren't told that something is a joke, they, they're going to scratch their heads and just be like, oh, this is weird. Or, or who does this guy think he is? So it's that sort of thing. And I'm not saying this from a place of like, oh, people are stupid because they don't have a sense of humor or because they have to be told that something is intending to be funny. They're, they're sheep. You know, I'm, I'm not coming from that place at all, but it is something that I notice and that I, to some degree, contend with, I feel like. You know, just anytime somebody takes you very literally, anytime you say something that is coming from a very facetious place and they answer you deadpan and their deadpan response is not a joke. Because sometimes you do that. Sometimes it's just all a miscommunication where you, you say something that you intend to be a joke and you think someone responds in sort of a deadpan way 
and you think, oh, they didn't get it, but it turns out they were actually pulling one over on you because they were making a joke that you didn't get. You thought that you were making a joke they didn't get. It turns out they were making a joke you didn't get. And how many things just boil down to that? How many wars have been fought over that? How many divorces have been finalized because of that? Too many to count. Too many. Too many, because if people just recognize, oh, you're joking, I'm joking too, everything would be okay. But, uh, you know, just to get back to that idea of the laugh track, where it's, it's more about letting you know that this is comedy. Because otherwise you're just going to think, this is a weird show. I don't get it. I don't get why that character said that. Oh, I'm supposed to laugh. Okay, it's, it's comedy. It makes sense now. But something, too, that people do, you know, I've had this experience at jobs with just people. And, and again, I'm trying not to, like, talk shit about people by saying this. But it just shows you how sense of humor isn't about taste. Like, I've worked with people before and known people where, like, literally their entire social currency is quoting sitcoms to each other. They don't say anything. They don't come up with anything on their own. They just literally, it's like this back and forth recitation of sitcom quotes and you see it online too if you ever go to websites like reddit that's a fascinating site and i try not to look at it too much but it's like they took the idea of message boards and took everything that was cool about message boards away and you know made it accessible to you know millions upon millions of people but if you look at the comments on a site like that you'll see that a lot of the comments are just people quoting sitcoms it's like, it's reference. So it's, it's this referential humor where a lot of, you know, just daily life, a lot of like daily humor in an office, anywhere, is just re- referencing things, referencing movies, referencing shows, quoting sitcoms. And I don't find that very funny, partially because I don't usually watch those shows and I'm not on a high horse here. I'm just saying I don't. So I don't necessarily know the reference myself. And... Because I don't know the reference myself, you know, it's like sometimes I'll just take it at face value and think somebody's being very funny. I'm like, oh, wow. It turns out I never saw that Will Ferrell movie that you're parodying. It turns out I didn't, but like I thought this person just came up with some weird original joke. But but a lot of the currency of, of humor in certain situations is just bouncing references off each other. And that's not for me. But I recognize that they are entertained by it. I recognize that they are trying to be funny. And it might not be my form of humor. I might not even get the reference. But I can tell what they're trying to do. You know, I can tell what they're trying to do. And I also recognize that people like that. They like that somebody is throwing out something that they've already laughed at and they can laugh at again. It's already been, they already know the laugh track is there. Like when, and I think that's part of it is comfort. When I see people go back and forth with sitcom quotes or I've heard people make those sorts, they'll quote sitcoms in the office, that kind of thing, I recognize, oh, this is more about comfort because it's familiar to them, you know, and this is familiar. Whereas, you know, when something isn't given a laugh track, when something isn't, you know, presented under the marquee of comedy, there's a tendency to be like, well, uh, you know, I'm uncomfortable. And I I think people are very uncomfortable in that situation when they don't know what they're seeing. They don't know how they're supposed to react. You know, they, they definitely feel a discomfort. So when something's familiar, and that's, I think people, honestly, I bet people prefer laugh tracks anyway, because laugh tracks themselves are familiar. There's a certain comfort to knowing that the audience is going to laugh at certain times rather than have some sort of dead space. 
Oh, it's just he he made that comment and and there's just silence for five seconds. Right, Batman? Right? Um so it's interesting, like just to think about that, how things kind of have to be you do have to kind of categorize things. And sometimes it can be hard to do. Especially if you don't even know that you're joking. I don't even know that I'm joking. Um but with I, I think humor is important to think about right now too, because People are, are overall, overall there's a climate of humorlessness right now. Because of everything going on in the world, because of the, the current world situation, there is a climate of humorlessness. And there was one before, it's not new. You know, there was the sort of politicized humorlessness where that's offensive, so I, not only do I not find it funny, but I need to shut you down. There was that already going on, but there's this overall, it's kind of like we're all at a funeral right now. Whether you know people who are immediately suffering, I mean, we all we all know people who are immediately, at the very least, inconvenienced. You know, even the richest, most stable person you know is inconvenienced. Um, so everybody's affected in some way. But it, it's sort of like the climate of a funeral, where it's like to joke right now, unless it fits into some sort of niche. And and it's a weird thing where. It's it's sort of like, you know, one thing I noticed when this all started is, you know, everybody was watching Tiger King, which I'm sure I would like if I saw it, but my oppositional defiance is like, oh, I don't have Netflix and I, I don't, I don't want to watch the thing that everybody's talking about. And I, and here I am talking about it, but every podcast I listened to, every time I got onto social media, there was some sort of, oh, Tiger King, Tiger King, um, sort of thing going on. And I just, my natural response to that is kind of be like, I'm going to... I'm going to step over here for a while because this feels like mind control. I don't know what they're trying to do to us by getting everybody to stay inside and watch Tiger King right now, but it certainly feels like a psyop to me. Certainly feels like a psyop to me. They're trying to they're trying to do something. I'm sure I could spin a conspiracy theory if I actually watched it. But it just felt like too perfect that everybody got shut inside and they were all watching the same exact thing at the same exact time. And of course, things used to be more that way. Everybody used to watch TV shows that were only on at a certain time every week, and if you missed it, there wasn't going to be any rerun until 30 years later on Nick at Night. Hey, Batty, come here, come here, come here, come here. Um, let me get him. we got a lap dog here. Um, and, uh, but, uh, you know, what, what, what am I saying, you know? Um, you know, a dog is really good at ending your sentences for you. It's like punctuation. A bark, just like, it puts a period. You know when you're typing in a word processor and you accidentally put a period too early on in the sentence and it just makes it all disjointed? When you're trying to do a podcast and your dog's barking, it's kind of like a bunch of periods get thrown into the sentence, like stopping the sentence and making it sound like total nonsense. Uh, but yeah, I, I did feel like this Tiger King was, if anything's a psyop, it felt like some weird sort of psyop. And you know, I don't think we're—I don't think we really understand psyops until many decades later. It's kind of like nobody would have understood MK Ultra when it was happening, but now we do. Now you know, it takes time. Time gives you perspective. Time will give us some perspective on Tiger King and the quarantine and the psyop that forced everybody to stay home and watch that and talk about it. And I feel comfortable talking about it now, now that everybody's already watched it. Because it's, it's sort of like using the word selfie, where I didn't use the word selfie initially. Too much of a rebel, didn't like the way it sounded. Didn't like the way selfie sounded. 
It would have been a great name for a little girl, but not a great name for taking photos of yourself. And God, I feel bad for all the people who did name their little girl Selfie, and I know they exist. They named them that, probably with a PH. I think there was a Final Fantasy character named Selfie with a PH. You know somebody's got a daughter named that. And, you know, then the word Selfie became the thing. So now what do you call your daughter? Just Self. Hey, Self. You know, parents have nicknames for their kids. Hey, uh, hey, Self. Imagine that. Imagine calling your kids Self. No projection there. I really want you to to become an astronaut because I never got to be one and I always dreamed of one. What do you think of that, self? <laughs> You'd really project your dreams onto a child of yours if you if you named them self. But anyway, it's sort of like the word selfie where it took me a very long time to come around to that word because I was like, I don't want to jump on this. Just in case it's it's not here to stay, I don't like it. So I don't want to support it. I don't want to be one of the people who reinforces this word in our society. But then eventually it just happened where, you know, I was just like, you know what? This is the word. It's no longer up to me. I'm just going to use it. I'm going to, if you can't beat them, join them. And I'm not going to come up with a better word. Just like I was talking recently about, you know, I haven't come up with a better term for love. I haven't come up with a better term for God. You know, I wanted to. I wanted to find my own little jewel. I wanted to find my own little thing that was only mine. I wanted to find that one little thing that, you know, I could clutch my little hairy hands on. And it turns out, oh, no, you know, everybody else is, God is the word, love is the word. What else am I going to come up with? You know, I can have my own framework for what that means to me. I can have my own way of understanding what those words mean. But it's still, it's like I'm not going to find a better word. And it... And the little dance you do trying to, you know, change the word or find your own word or go with this, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's sort of the same way I feel about, like, I used to, like, hate the idea of calling myself an artist. I was like, oh, it's so pretentious. And then I realized how much more pretentious it is to give a long-winded explanation for why you don't call yourself an artist. So I was just like, oh, yeah, I'm an artist. Oh, yeah, it's called a selfie. Oh, yeah, Tiger King. Still haven't seen it, but I'm comfortable talking about it because uh, enough time has passed where I'm like, okay, you know, enough time has passed. I'll use selfie. I'll mention Tiger King. But actually, I have nothing else to say about it. I have nothing else to say about it because I haven't seen it. But it just, it did feel like some sort of uh, psyop. It felt like some, some, there was something almost conspiratorial about it. And, uh, you know, and, and so it's like, I don't know, it's just, it's it's something we do. It's something we do, and uh, in, the, in the same way that it's like you, you reference sitcoms at work to, you know, find common ground with your coworkers, because it's too dangerous to make a joke of your own and have it be misinterpreted or misunderstood, or God forbid, taken seriously. You gotta take this seriously, guys, the hubris of that. And I, and just to go back to the general humorlessness right now, totally understand. I totally understand, especially if you're in, like, if, if you're being evicted tomorrow, if your kids aren't getting food right now, you know, I understand there's nothing funny uh, going on in your life. Like, I, I understand that. 
But as far as like the overall climate of humorlessness, you know, I get that too, but it's not going to stop me from trying to be funny. And it, just for my own sake, for my own sanity. You know, I was talking to my friend Miles, who I reference a lot on here, but you know, I was talking to him when all this started and I was saying, you know, I've, pr- I've purposely put myself on the brink before. I've purposely crawled along that edge to insanity on my own deliberately and sometimes not so deliberately and I somehow made it out. Others might disagree. I personally feel pretty okay. Pretty okay with, you know, how my brain works and where I'm at. But, you know, I've personally, you know, I've skirted all that before and I was like, this situation isn't going to be the thing that pushes me over the edge. This current situation isn't going to be the thing that makes me lose my mind. And it hasn't. It really hasn't. Um, I, I feel like I've gotten a lot of clarity from this situation. But I know that the reason why I feel like I've been able to stay sane through a lot of different situations, you know, you know, the way I used to live, the way I used to think, going through, you know, serious situations in my life, you know, people dying, the most important to me, people to me in the world dying. I have gotten through that partially through humor, because humor is this it's almost like a solution, and I don't mean that as in an answer to a problem, but it's almost like a chemical solution. It's like when you put something in that liquid, this, this liquid humor, which isn't humor, doesn't that refer to some kind of liquid too, the humors of the body? But you put something in that solution, it's almost like this, uh, I don't know, it, just, it softens it up. You put something in the solution of humor, and it softens it up. And, and you don't want to be disrespectful, because sometimes people don't want to be softened up. If people are really anxious and worried right now in the world, which for goddamn good reason, and I am too, you know, they don't necessarily want anything to soften the edges, because they think the edges are what's going to help them survive, and maybe it will. Maybe, you, maybe people who joke don't survive as well. Maybe there were a lot of people in ancient history who, who joked a little bit too much and evolution left them in the dust, the orange Cheeto saliva dust. Evolution's going to, you know, if you make too many jokes, it's almost like a version of if you, you know, if you keep making that face, it's going to stay that way. If you keep pulling your eyelids down so that you look like a weird freak, you're going to look that way forever. It's almost like that. If you keep making that joke, you're going to stay that way forever. And there's some truth to that. But the more extreme version is, if you keep joking around, evolution is going to leave you behind in the saliva-soaked cheetah orange dust. Do you want that? Do you want to stay stuck in the orange dust? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's almost like that. But I don't know. I think that a lot more people have survived through humor because I think it's overall a positive solution. And now I am talking about a response to a problem. And I also feel like I'm doing some sort of beat poetry. But yeah, I see humor that way. I see humor as a solution, and anything that enters it is softened up a bit. It becomes more manageable. It becomes more malleable. And I don't think it's malevolent, just to keep riffing on these words. Manageable, malleable, and not malevolent. Story of my life. It's my only goal. I want to be, as a person, I want to be manageable, malleable, and not malevolent. And humor does that. I think humor is the way that I stay that way. You know, but I also understand it's, it's not always for everybody. And you're not going to joke at 
you know, you might feel comfortable joking at your own mom's funeral, depending on who she was, depending on who your family was. But you, you're not going to go to someone else's mom's funeral and joke, unless everybody else is doing it and you're, and it's welcome, you know, that kind of thing. But it's kind of the same thing right now. We're on a person-to-person basis. If someone is worried or upset, I'm not going to go up to them and be like, let's, let's kid around a little bit. Let's kid. You need, oh, what you need, I have the perfect solution for you. Let's make fun of your life. And you'll feel better. No, it's I'm not going to do that to somebody. But it's like, just in my own self-expression, humor is very important. And I also understand a lot of people probably don't find me funny. But I hope that people do understand that there is... A, <laughs> I, I don't expect people to know where the joke begins and ends, because I don't really know. But I hope people understand, anybody who pays attention, that there's humor here. And I get into this, too, because it is a continual issue in my life and not something that I've hallucinated, where it's just sometimes it's just people don't know that what I'm saying is facetious, or they don't know that there's an element of humor to it. And right now, I feel like that's especially apparent, where, I don't know, anxiety, people who are going, people who are panicking, people who are having anxiety, they take the world very seriously. They're shaking. Humor doesn't have an effect on them because they're scared. But if you can find the humor in anxiety, well, you're set. To be shaking, to be electric with anxiety, to have the electricity of anxiety shooting through you and to be able to laugh about it, holy shit, you're set. You are set for life if that's how you feel. And something I like that Terrence McKenna said, and I'm not, I'm not one of these psychedelic guys, despite how much it might seem that way, I'm really not one of these, you know, proponents of psychedelic research or, you know, p- tripping and all that stuff. Yeah, I have tried it, you know, and, and I, I would not, I value it. I think those things are, have been very important, especially for certain people, and, and, and they have their time and their place, but they're not a thing that I'm, I'm not a proponent really. And, uh, but one thing that Terrence, Mc- and I, I got to give a disclaimer, I guess, because it's like, whenever I hear Terrence McKenna mentioned, it's often by people who are just like, psychedelics, man, you know, it's like this, it's a certain thing, it's a certain approach, and it's fine, but Terrence McKenna said something that just stayed with me, and he, he said that anxiety is a form of hubris, and I was just like, holy shit, because it's, you know, if when you are anxious, you are taking everything so seriously, and it's not just that you're taking everything so seriously in that moment, you are convinced that you know what's going to happen, and that is hubris, believing that you know, and not only do you know what's going to happen, but you need to affect the present moment with your shaky, electric, mind-racing madness, because you're like, because that's obviously going to help you, you know, let's say the worst possible fate is around the corner and you just know it. Well, is your anxiety going to help you with that? And I understand it's not something you can necessarily control, or can you? Or can you? I think that you can condition yourself in the same way that you can condition your brain to meditate, in the same way that you can condition your body to lift weights or to do any kind of, uh, you know, exert itself in certain ways. I believe that you can condition your anxiety. I believe that you can condition yourself to actually take something from that and not just to be this neutralized, vibrating mess. You can actually do something with your anxiety. 
And one of those things is to find the humor in it, for sure. Again, humor is a solution. But I also understand when, when times are anxious, and it's when, when not only you are feeling anxious, but everybody is feeling anxious, and everybody is very serious, you know, it makes sense that you might not be entirely receptive to, to other people's irreverent humor, to other people's, you know, whatever it is they're doing. Because anxiety, along with, you know, along with there being some hubris, along with anxiety having a certain degree of hubris to it, just that you think you know what's going to happen. You think you know how it is. Aside from that, it also makes you very self-centered. And if you've ever been close to somebody who's severely depressed or has an anxiety disorder, and anxiety is something I'm much more familiar with than true blue depression, blue um, oh, is this, does this come in depression blue? That's like the kind of jokes everybody makes nowadays. Like 20-year-old girls who call themselves, you know, whatever. Um, they're like, oh, I, I thought about wearing another color, but I, I decided to wear depression blue. Like millennium pink, pink, millennial pink, depression blue. Um, but, uh, you know, blue depression, blue. But uh, the thing about all, you know, if you've ever been close to someone who has that, and, you know, it's, you got to have sympathy. Empathy, sympathy, you know, it's, it's not a joke necessarily, you know. I mean, you can joke about depression. You can joke about anxiety. But uh, the thing is, you become very self-absorbed. And when I've been depressed, when I've been anxious, I become very self-absorbed. But if you know somebody who's in a deep depression... They're also very self-absorbed, and they know it, and they hate it about themselves. So this isn't me being like, depressed people are so self-absorbed, because that's going to help. I mean, it's something that people know about themselves when they're depressed. When I've been depressed, like I said, I, don't, I wouldn't consider myself prone to clinical depression, but I would certainly say I've been periodically depressed by circumstances, sometimes of my own doing, you know, sometimes as a, a byproduct of my own behavior. But still, like, you know, when I think of depression, when I, th when I, uh, when I think, when I think, of, well, when, when I think of depression, I, I think of a lot of self-absorption. And when you think about people who are the opposite of depressed, people who are just truly out there and engaged, they're often doing things for other people. They're often far less self-absorbed. You know, you can't escape your vanity. You can't escape your ego. But when people are just, you know, completely immersed in the world and not in a weird, they're not trying to climb any ladders or put a crown on their head. They're just out there engaged. And they're often not depressed. And they're, they're often less self-absorbed. So that's just an interesting thing about it. And I think everybody's kind of self-absorbed right now, you know, because we're stuck at home. If you are the sort of person who finds meaning in life by going out, by volunteering, by talking to people, by being a friendly face, by doing nice things, you're limited right now. You're not able to do that. So I think that that itself could cause a depression. That itself could cause anxiety. You're used to getting this part of yourself out there, and it's worked for you. So that's an interesting side of this, too, that a lot of people who have maintained a certain level of mental and spiritual health by engaging with the world aren't able to do that in the same hands-on way. 
So in that, you know, inevitably we would all be a lot more self-absorbed right now, and yet we're not because, you know, we're doing something for the collective. We're staying in for other people. You know, so we are doing a lot for other people in our own sort of an indirect way, I guess. And uh, I don't know. I just I'm, I'm thinking about all this stuff. And, you know, I know that my own personal mechanism is very much having some sort of sense of humor. And it's funny, though, you know, you can easily, too, you can, you can kind of mistake some. Sometimes people, it's just the circumstances. I think, for example, you know, since my mom passed, I've been in touch with a lot more, like, senior citizen ladies. And there's a couple of her friends that I hear from. Like, I get, like, a message from them maybe once a week, and it's really nice. And so I, and I haven't met many of these people, but I'll just, I'm in touch with a lot more of these older women than before. And I feel like older women have gotten a bad rap in the last few years. There's this new thing that people talk about. They're like, oh, the Karens are here. Oh, look, it's a, it's a table full of Karens, and they're going to they're gonna ask for uh, this to be reheated because it's not hot enough, and they're not going to tip very well. And it's a form of that whole, like, oh, white people, right, thing that young liberals do. It's a variation of that. Because we all know what kind of name, you know, that is. You know, we all, we all know that it's a certain generation of Caucasian American women. And so it's very much part of that whole movement that's been going on. The like, white people, right? Flavorless food. They got boring food. And they're the most demanding customers. You know, and whether that's true or not doesn't matter. But you can see where it's picked up momentum way beyond. You can see where it's politicized. And so there's this whole like anti-Karen movement. But I think those women also get a very bad rap. I mean, again, it's like if you look at the worst possible behavior that a certain group exhibits, you could easily just project that on the entire group. And that's often what we do. It's like when the Republicans were protesting the quarantine, I saw a lot of people reacting like, look at what the Republicans are doing. Look at what all the Republicans are doing. Look at the dumb. Look at how dumb they are. And it's like those are just a small subset of Republicans, just like the most annoying radical leftists are a subset of people who vote Democrat or have liberal beliefs, you know, it's, and, and of course, you know, the straw man war, the war of the straw men is that you choose those people as the target for your rage because they're easy. You don't go with the person who has the soundest arguments, you know, you're not going to choose them. So it's the Karens are very much a straw man, a straw woman, a straw mom, a straw aunt. Because it's like, oh, look at what this, what a subset of a certain type of woman does. And let's judge them all for it. And it's okay. It's, it's people, are, people are finding humor in it too. But it does verge on becoming hateful. And whenever those things pick up steam, you know, I just, I cringe a little bit because I'm just like, oh, here we go. But something that, you know, people don't realize about the Karen demographic is there are a lot of so-called Karens who are very open-minded. You know, they are very open-minded. You know, they, they just have an openness to them. And that's been my experience. You know, and I've, this isn't new. I've always gotten along with older women. And there's nothing weird about this. There's nothing, uh, there's no weird. You can make all, like, all kinds of jokes. Oh, you like the older ladies? And it's, no, I'm talking about like, old ladies. I'm talking about just people talking to people, and I, I've always gotten along really well with older women for whatever reason. 
And what I like about them is there is an open-mindedness. And yeah, you could give me a list. You could email me that list of closed-minded middle-aged to senior-age women. You could uh, That list is long, too, and I know. But there is a certain, there, there's a unique open-mindedness that goes along with a certain age group of women. And whether it has to do with one particular generation, whether it is the baby boomers, I don't know. Whether it's always the case, I don't know. But I've had that experience even with, I think of a, one of my mom's friends who I haven't seen or talked to in 20 years. And I got in touch with her after she passed, and she had a son who was my friend. And you know, my and my impression of her, just honestly, growing up, she was way too strict, way too tense, and uh, it it was. I didn't dislike her ever, but it was just that wasn't the most fun to, fun house to stay over at. You would, you certainly wouldn't sneak out if you stayed over there. And it wasn't that she was mean. It was just, it just felt tense. It felt like she had this perfect idea of how things should be. And I I really thought that was her. And I I judged her completely for that. Or just assumed that she was that way, I guess. And then being in touch with her recently, I've just really noticed. I'm like, wow, she, part of it might be having raised her children. You know, she's no longer like, because I imagine like, if something is going to make you tense and worried and anxious, here we go, anxious, because I would have described her as humorless. I, I assume this woman was humorless my entire childhood. And in communicating with her recently, I'm like, this woman, is, she gets my sense of humor, which is really fucking strange, and, and is just really easygoing and open-minded to talk to. And I'm just like, wow, like this is a relief. You know, uh, this is a relief. This, this woman isn't what I thought she was. And not that I was worried about talking, not that she was a problem before, but it was just like, oh, that's a person that I probably don't have anything, any, anything to talk to about. But it's like, yeah, of course, she was probably extremely anxious, you know, throughout while her kid was growing up and just probably just extremely worried about how this kid's going to end up. And it was just tense and who knows what her family background was. But it's like in talking to her recently, you know, someone who's in their twilight years, you know, who's now a senior citizen and enjoying life and no longer worried about her kid. And, you know, just like, wow, she's just, there's just like a certain, I'm very shocked that that she is so different now than I thought she was. I was just, it was a delight, you know, I I would use the word, it was a delight to notice that. And it was nice to be wrong. And maybe I wasn't wrong then, but it's nice to know that, you know, things can change. Or maybe the real person was just sort of buried behind this weird shadow of, of parenthood. You know, you can see where that happens. Just like you don't know your coworkers. Like, you don't know your friend's parents. You don't even know your own parents. You know what I mean? Like, there's so much, there's so much weight. There's so much illusion surrounding these things that you don't know what your parents are like as a friend necessarily. You know, you don't know what your parent, you don't know what your parents' actual personality is like when they're with their peers. You know, and and so it's it's kind of like your teachers, it's kind of like your coworkers, where you have this tendency to assume that even if you know people are different out of work, you know, there's still this tendency to like see your coworkers and think that you know exactly who they are. Like maybe Skyler, who I worked with, who ate all the donuts and ran his finger through the the cheese dust, the orange dust. You know, maybe when he went home, he was very moderate. Maybe he didn't eat anything that's bad for you. Maybe he ate very healthy, very small portions. Maybe there were never any stacks of donuts 
going back and forth in his house. I saw him at work, and I saw how he conducted himself at work, but do I know how he is at home? No, I don't. And I think it's the same thing with these other roles, where we have a tendency to think, oh, my coworkers, like, I know, how, I know what he's like. I know what he's like. Same thing with our parents. Oh, I know what my parents are like. I know what my friend's parents are like. And do you really? You know, they were playing a role, and, you know, who knows what that role, you know, I, I feel a lot of pressure when I'm given a role. Even if it's one I wanted, I feel a certain pressure. So I can't even imagine what it's like to find yourself a, a parent. So, you know, you think about that. and But just, I don't know. I, don't, I, don't, I just, I wanted to say something because I see it all the time now, the whole Karen thing. And I'm not one to, I understand people, are, it, it's funny. Like people are trying to be funny. There is a certain type of haircut. There is a certain type of behavior. And... I get that, like, the most negative version of that, the most annoying version of that, it's funny just to be like, that's a Karen. But you can see where that, it, it's, it becomes, I, I think my problem with, it's not, because I, I totally get the humor in that, and that's very much like my kind of observational humor, being like, oh, a certain type of person who does this, you ever notice that? I'm very into that. But I think where humor loses traction for me is when it becomes a political mechanism. Like, I'm not a fan of political cartoons. They look really good. Like, if you look at old political cartoons, they're beautiful. The content, fuck it. Fuck it. You know, I don't, I don't like it because it has an agenda. And, and I, it's just, they're always, political cartoons suck. I think that I tolerated them and I like, kind of convinced myself I liked them because of how they look, and they do look beautiful. But when I think about like the stupid little like, little, like, oh, here's a bottle rocket that says U.S. Treasury, and it's flying into a bank. Oh, here's here's a little here's a an M80. Here's here's some TNT. They they always have like TNT that says something on it, like TNT that says like White House, and then it'll be like blowing up like a mine that says, like, U.S. Treasury, economy, you know, international relations, foreign relations, you know, it's, it's always, it, they're always the same. I hate political cartoons. Uh, <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel when, when I see something become politicized, like this Karen's thing or this boomer thing. And it's not that I don't understand where the criticism is coming from and why certain people from that generation are frustrating, it's not that I don't understand that, but it's like when that kind of stuff gets politicized, even if it's rooted in something, in some sort of observational humor, some sort of true humor for humor's sake, even if it's rooted in that, by the time that it becomes this weird political, you know, by the time it becomes political, politicized, politicized, I just, it, it comes across like a political cartoon. And that's how I feel. Like if somebody posts something like a meme that makes fun of a, of Karens, to me that's a political cartoon, and I I want nothing to do with it. When my grandson sends me political cartoons, I say, "Listen to me, I want nothing to do with this. Save it for your father. Save it for your mother. I want nothing to do with this." You know, I don't want any... Don't send me political cartoons. I'm angry about political... You know, nothing makes me angrier than a political cartoon. 
But yeah, memes are very much the modern political cartoon, and they have been for a number of years. We saw the role they played in the last election. We still see the role they're playing today. But memes have very much become the modern political cartoon, and I feel the same way about them as I do political cartoons. And I feel the same way about any joke that has some sort of agenda. I guess that'd be the... I think the best way I could put this, the best way I could summarize this, is I don't like it when... Because for me, the reason why I see humor as a solution is that the end goal is the humor itself. Like, the goal of the humor is, isn't some larger point. It isn't attached to some other narrative or idea. It's simply the fact that that saying that or doing that is in and of itself entertaining. It, there might be more you can take from it, but to me, it's like, oh yeah, okay. The, the solution that you're putting that into, when you soften up that thing, I'm imagining like a hard-shelled crab, which is kind of what people are like when they're really when when they're humorless when someone's really humorless it's almost like you're talking to a, a crab and i think there's a reason why crabby is what people say about someone who's who's being kind of bitchy crabby was the original bitchy by the way those mean the same thing they're not the same as being mad there's a certain there's it's like it's like this kind of small-minded petty anger I mean, there's not really a better way to explain it. It's one of those things that I can't even explain because the words themselves, crabby and bitchy. And, I, and when I say bitchy, here's the disclaimer, but you know, when I say bitchy, it has nothing to do with men or women. I think that I, I've, I've probably seen men behave, and I'm not saying this just to say it, just to get points, but I, I've probably seen men be more bitchy in my life. And maybe that's just because I'm a man who hangs out with more men. I, although, I, I, you know, I've got a lot of female friends, you know, not to brag, not to brag, but, you know, I have had a lot of, you know, women friends, and I still feel like the men I know have tended to be bitchier. And don't don't stick this feather in your feminist cap or anything, but it's just something I've noticed. But crabbiness and bitchiness, so I don't think I'm wrong in seeing people as crabs, you know, when they're, when they're humorless. I think they look like, I feel like I'm talking to a crab... Uh, but uh, but what I was getting at is just that, for me, where humor dies, where I no longer appreciate humor, is when it's not for its own sake. When humor is being used to push some other kind of agenda. When it's trying to convince people to think a certain way. It's propaganda. I avoid using that word, because it's, it's one of those words that's lost its meaning, like so many other words, but propaganda... Once once the average person had that in their vocabulary and they started to use it for virtually everything they disagree with, it lost its meaning. It was a good word while it lasted. Rest in peace, propaganda. That's my political cartoon. R.I.P. Propaganda. It's a casket. It's a political cartoon of like a casket, a miniature casket going into a toilet, and it says... R.I.P. Propaganda. Propaganda was nice while it lasted. Too bad everybody learned what it meant and used it for everything. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, uh, uh, just that's, that's my feeling about humor, where it's like the second I feel that humor is attached to something else. And that's kind of my problem with the Karen thing. Because I'm all about, like, look at, this, look at this type of person. 
You ever notice that? You ever notice there's a certain type of person, there's a certain type of woman. She's maybe between the ages of forty-five and sixty-three, and she goes to uh, restaurants and she has her hair parted down the side and it's fanned up in the back and it's bleached. And she uh, she says, "Oh no, I want this, but I want it that way. Can you do this? You know, I, I could easily do a whole annoying bit on it, but uh, and that'd be fine on its own." You know, like that sort of humor is fine with me, but it's when it becomes like this, like the idea of the Karen gets merged with the boomer, which gets merged with the Trump supporter. And then you know what people are trying to say when they point that out. It gets merged with the virtue signaling young white liberal who constantly feels the need to trash other white people so that everybody knows how cool and well-rounded they are. That's so white. So white. Oh, that's so white of you. (laughs) You know, it's that sort of thing, which, again, is fine unto itself. Like, I'm fine with self-deprecation. I'm fine with white people making fun of white people. It's most of what I do. I mean, really, when I think about it, like, like, if I'm making fun of people, I'm usually probably making fun of white people. But it's when it becomes politicized, and, and you're like, oh, okay, I see what you're trying to do. I know what you're trying to communicate. I know what you're trying to signal. But maybe I shouldn't assume. Maybe that's my fault. Because a lot of this comes down to uh, assuming intent. Maybe when somebody... Maybe when I see a political cartoon, I should look at it and say, you know what? I don't really know if this is meant to be political. Even though it says U.S. Treasury, banks, stock market, even and it has like a cartoon of the president, maybe that's not political. No, but but really, when other people are making jokes, I mean, it's something for me to keep in mind, because I'm certainly imperfect. And, you know, I should remember that, hey, I don't necessarily know somebody else's intent either. I don't necessarily know what somebody means either. You know, I, I don't necessarily know what's going on with them. And I expect the same benefit of the doubt for me. But sense of humor, the, the big thought of the day is sense of humor, understanding that that doesn't refer to taste. Sense of humor refers to simply having the sense. It's the sixth sense. It's being able to understand that somebody else is joking. And here's the thing, you know, people used to say, in the early days of the internet, I, used to, I don't know if I see this anymore, but I used to see, uh, it was a common thing people said where they were like, I, I can't read sarcasm through the computer. I can't read sarcasm through the computer. And it's like, you can't? You know, I can. And maybe I, maybe I assume people are being sarcastic when they're not. Maybe I err in that I go too far the other way and when I think that somebody's joking when they're not. Maybe. You know, I very well might go too far the other way where I'm like, somebody says something deadly serious and I laugh. Something, hopefully not some not something too inappropriate, but, you know, maybe I go too far the other way. Maybe, maybe when I assume intent, I tend to assume people are joking when they aren't, and I should learn from that, you know? Because I'm certainly not perfect. Uh, but, uh... But yeah, I think you know, understanding sense of humor is not the same as your taste in humor. And just because you don't like it, just because it isn't your cup of tea, whether you don't whether it's because you simply find it unfunny, which is criminal enough, or whether you're offended by it. 
whether you're full on offended, you should at least be able to know whether someone is joking. Because there's a, there's this tendency when someone is offended by something, they tend to treat it from that point on like it was just totally deadpan propaganda. You know, they, they tend to treat it like it was intended. They assume the worst possible intent. And it's easy to do that in your life, and I should not go into the general ways that we do that, but I think it's easy to understand that, where we have a tendency to assume the worst possible intent. And that's sort of like assuming the worst possible future, which is what Terence McKenna was talking about when he said anxiety was a form of hubris. He was saying that you are assuming the worst possible outcome is going to happen. How audacious of you that you believe that. And whether it comes to be or not, how audacious of you to, in the present moment to have the hubris to, to believe that the worst possible outcome is going to happen and that that should ruin the right now. That should ruin the present moment because you know what's coming around the corner. Don't smell that fresh air now because a train's going to come smack into you the second you get out of this, uh, you get around this corner here. Um, you know, it's, it's that sort of mindset and it's easier said than done. And you're probably not ever going to overcome it. Probably not ever going to overcome anxiety or worry. But it is a thing that you can use. It is a thing that you can exercise. And you can do it by having a sense of humor. You know, you can easily at least make your anxiety more manageable by having a sense of humor about it. And it, like I said, it's easier said than done. But, uh, yeah, with, with this idea, though, of, with this idea of knowing what's going to happen, it's very similar to the idea of knowing what someone's intent is. It's something that you can't see, and while you might have glimpses, you might think you know, you don't truly know. So that's something important to consider. In the same way that you don't know what someone's intent is, you very well don't know you very well might not know what's coming down the line. So, uh, you know, give people a break. I think, that, I think that's what it all comes down to, is giving someone a break. In the same way that I didn't snitch Skyler out for dragging his saliva-covered finger through the orange dust, I cut him a break. Unfortunately, you know, I didn't cut my coworkers a break because some of those people digested that kid's saliva. Probably. So everything you do has an up and a downside. We know that. But I didn't snitch out Skylar. I, I, I cut him a break. I said, maybe he knows what he's doing. Maybe, he know, maybe I don't know what his intent is when I see him dragging his finger through the bottom of that cauldron of cheese balls. Maybe I don't know what his motivation is when he's running his finger through that dust. I don't know. You might not know the same thing about someone else, and you might never really know, and you might still tend to, you're going to lapse into assumption, you're still going to go through all those thoughts, you're still going to assume things about people, but if you condition yourself not to do that all the time, well, that seems like a big win. And if you condition yourself, if you condition your, if you condition yourself to be able to manage your anxiety 
with some level of humor, that's a big win. And humor is something that, for me, it's, it's sacred. As much as it's irreverent, there is something sacred to me about being able to laugh and being able to entertain myself, too. There's something sacred about that. And there are so many things that I would give up before I would give up that. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.